0: One recent news reporting, the Burning Man Festival has received quite a bit of press. Burning Man is an annual gathering that takes place out in the desert. It's a week-long, large-scale campout in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada. For the attendees of Burning Man, it is home. It's a place to get away from a life that is not home, It's a place to be yourself fully as you are. In fact, one of the core principles of Burning Man is radical self-expression. Be whoever you want to be. For one week, be who you are. The debate swirls around what exactly this Burning Man figure, this large effigy, stands for. It's a giant sculpture at the head of the camp. Some say it is... Whatever you want it to be. Others see him as, quote, the man, the embodiment of corporate and capitalism. At the very end of the festival, they burn the man, a way of, quote, sticking it to him. A burning man made the news because during the festival, the Lord sent two months of rain in two days. Torrential downpours flooded the event stranding thousands. In a way the event is biblical. It captures so much of the scriptures. Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his daughters. Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. The Solomon of First Kings or the Nabal of First Samuel, the Jezebel of Revelation. Burning Man takes the list of sins from our passage this morning. It promotes them and endorses those who practice them. But at the same time, ironically, there is an illustration in this for our lives. You know, the Christian once lived in a wilderness, in this spiritual desert. We once lived according to our desires. And when we came to faith, Jesus called us to leave it all behind, to burn that man, so to speak, and to make our radical self-expression now fully immersed in the person of Jesus Christ and to come to suffer with him through the normal ups and downs of everyday living. We've been working our way through the epistle to 1 Peter And we pick up there this morning. The aim of our series is to prepare us for suffering. We're going to find this morning in our text that suffering is not reserved strictly for some verbal abuse we might encounter. Simply some kind of physical beating. It's not just about a challenge to our religious liberties or a ban on school prayer. No, normal Christians suffer living normal lives whispers from those deserts of the past, insults from our friends will suffer both from within and from without. We'll pick up this morning in First Peter chapter 4, we'll look at verses 1 through 6, and in these verses we'll explore three elements of suffering so you and I can endure in those times of Trial. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1 Therefore writes Peter Since Christ has suffered in the flesh arm yourselves also with the same purpose Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Well, in our first two verses this morning, I want you to see the preparation for suffering. Your preparation for suffering. Our passage this morning comes as a result of chapter 3. If you're in your Bibles, if you look back, verses 18 through 22, there we learned about the victory of Jesus Christ. You may recall in that message, it was his victory that's the main idea. It was one of those passages that has a main trail with a lot of side trails, as though you're journeying along on a hike. We explored some of those side trails. We learned about what Jesus did while he was in the tomb, and what happened with angels in the days of Noah, and how baptism links to salvation. But the big picture, Jesus suffered and died and rose again. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, as a result, you now go and live. Based on what Christ has done, you now go and do. Christ has suffered in the flesh. Again, this connection goes back to what proceeds all the way back to verse 18. Christ also suffered for sins once for all. Now certainly our verse this morning, verse 1, there's an emphasis on the crucifixion of Jesus. But we know that the Bible doesn't leave us with someone who is unable to identify with our suffering. As though his suffering for our sins on the cross, that's the only place where he suffered. No. Just consider his temptations for a moment. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest, being Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I believe the temptation in the wilderness comes to mind, where Jesus was led out there and tempted in the wilderness. That's one place we know he was tempted, though Luke alludes to other places, no doubt. At the end of that time, Satan left him until an opportune time. Jesus suffered under the temptation to sin. Let's consider his circumstances. In the Garden of Gethsemane, there was an internal anguish our Lord experienced. Luke 22, verse 44, being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And you know what he prayed? Let there be another way. Jesus suffered at the prospect of obeying God. Peter says to you and I this morning, he says, do the same. Arm yourselves with the same purpose. That word purpose there can be translated as attitude or intention. Maybe your Bibles read that way. Arm yourselves with the same intention. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. Just as Jesus determined to suffer for God, so too must we. Our New Testament authors love to borrow imagery from the military. And Peter does that here. He says, arm yourself. It's a thought-provoking image, if you can imagine, a Roman soldier, outfitted, weapons loaded, bayonet fixed, deployed, ready for combat. It's that level of preparation or that level of alertness. It's that kind of readiness. That's what he calls for here. He calls for that attitude toward suffering for our faith. There's a sense here of, of some kind of discipline, some kind of grit where you're gonna hang in there and you're gonna ride it out and you're gonna persevere for Christ. Peter's saying the Christian life won't be easy. So at the outset, we must understand the suffering of our Lord. And we must understand that we must be determined to do the same. In fact, when we suffer, we reveal something about ourselves. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And Peter writes here of Christians. This statement equates with the command we just mentioned to arm yourselves. In other words, those who have armed themselves are those who are determined to live for Christ, those determined to suffer. And don't misunderstand this phrase, cease from sin, either. Peter's not promising you and I a sinless perfection because we've armed ourselves. No, no. Those who arm themselves turn from sin. They've made a radical break with sin. They've left it in the desert. They're fighting sin. They're repenting of sin. They're not perfect, but they're ceasing from that pursuit of it. We suffer in our fight against sin because resisting sin causes suffering. It's hard. At times, it's defeating. Discouraging. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want, says Paul, who wrote 13 New Testament letters. As Christians, we suffer to live lives that please God. To say it another way, we suffer to live holy. We anguish over those sins we can't shake. God may feel absent as we struggle with sin and fall and fall again. We may even doubt our assurance, how can I possibly be saved? Well, believer, you will shake all of your sins the moment you see Christ. And it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong, said Peter. And if you wrestle with assurance of your faith, your wrestling is a strong, strong indicator that you are in Christ. Your desire to live the rest of your time in the flesh for the will of God, this comes from the Holy Spirit. So arm yourselves to live like Christ. Study to learn about the suffering of Jesus. Pray for what is to come, that in those moments you would Persevere and invest in relationships that are going to stand the test. You may already be experiencing suffering as a result of fighting sin. We must be prepared to suffer like Christ. It's a a determination, a decision we need to make now, this morning. Not one that's going to be made in the moment, hoping that we're going to make the right decision. I think we're calling here for a settled mindset, a resolution planting two feet on the floor as we get out of bed in the morning, determined to live for Christ, to persevere in suffering today. So if this is something then that we do this morning, if this is something we do now, what about in the moment? What happens when suffering does come for our faith? Well, it's our second point this morning, verses 3 and 4, we persevere in suffering. We persevere in suffering. Persevering tramples that burning man who seeks resurrection. When you're tempted to return to your old ways, believer, persevere. Peter says you've given enough time and enough energy to those sins. He says that the time passed is sufficient. We might say that you've logged enough hours or that the barn is full. We don't need to go back to it. We don't need any more of it. He says you've given enough time to the desire of the Gentiles. Gentiles is another word for unbelievers, those who don't know Christ. And desires in this context, those would be the inclinations that arise from our hearts. Whatever pops into our minds, whatever attracts us, those kinds of things he used to call the shots. In a way, what Peter says here is remember, but don't return the Lord does this with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. It's very interesting how he does this. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, God said, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, if you're a Bible trivia expert, you're gonna know that this is not the first time that the Lord has commanded Israel to keep the Sabbath. He did it previously in the book of Exodus. And if you are a Bible trivia expert who makes it to final jeopardy, you'll know that the Lord gave this different reason for their obedience. In six days he made the heaven and the earth and on the seventh he rested. And then he said, keep the Sabbath. So God is giving Israel different yet equally excellent reasons to obey Him. He redeemed them. That's one reason to obey. He created. That's one reason to obey. To the point of our passage, He redeemed them as an enslaved people. You and I must remember our slavery. One way to propel us into obedience To keep us on the path of perseverance is to remember our slavery, those former desires. Now, don't meditate upon them. Don't remember them to the point of despondency. But know that their time is past and that you are now in Christ. And that is much, much better. And when they come knocking, for surely they will. Do not be deceived by their appearance. As they approach, as they revisit, as they call you back, they will look very inviting. They can be quite enticing. There's going to be no reminder of the pain they once inflicted. The consequences of that old intimacy, when you befriended them, all of that will be left outside. But don't buy it. Don't forget the fallout from befriending those old desires. Don't forget the fallout from practicing those old sins. Just imagine how that will impact today, your relationship with Jesus. Listen to those desires that called Peter's Christians. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. They used to travel the journey. They went from one sin to the next. Pursued a course is, is one word. It's used just three verses back. Look back at verse 22. Jesus at the right hand of God, having gone, that's the same word, having gone into heaven. In verse 3, chapter 4, this is the real-life description of former believers who are going from place to place, who are going from sin to sin. And if you don't know any better, you would think that Peter is writing in 21st century America. What's the summary of these sins in this list? Alcohol and sex. Sensuality is basically an abandonment of boundaries. Now, Peter's using the word later in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, to describe the people of Sodom. And worse than that, it has to do with this openness about it, with a forsaking of any kind of shame, almost a flaunting of it. Lust is the second sin. It's probably paired together with the first one, sensuality. Drunkenness is a compound word. It puts the Greek word wine alongside the word overflow. Literally, they overflowed with wine. Carousing at some of your Bibles, it reads orgies. All three appearances of this word in the New Testament are coupled with drunkenness. Drinking parties is self-explanatory. And abominable idolatries. well, that may seem out of place... But in their cultural context, it makes sense. Remember, Peter wrote to Christians in modern day Turkey. They would have been pagan with foreign religions under the thumb of Rome and their gods. Geographically, whether it was Rome or Turkey, they had their own religions, their own festivals. The Bacchus Festival was one they probably would have celebrated. It's derived from the god of winemaking, and that festival celebrated intoxication alongside ecstasy. The Saturnalia Festival took place in what we now call the Christmas season. Sacrifices were made to Saturn, the god of agriculture, and her temple. Gifts were then exchanged, followed by a week-long celebration. You see, Peter's audience lived in a world where religion... And alcohol and sex, they're all bound together. And they fit into each other. And this morning, this may not be your world. Verse 3 may not be your sin list. But don't miss the point Peter makes. Each of us have sins. Former desires that call us back into the desert. It calls away from Christ. You may this morning check all the boxes in verse 3. You may check none of the boxes in verse 3. Perhaps you came to faith very early in life and none of these sins really apply to you. Either way, fleshly desires wage war against the soul. It could be lusts and drunkenness. It could be more subdued. It could be pride and self-righteousness. We all have a list. We all have a verse 3, and we're all going to suffer to resist them. Just as Jesus suffered in the flesh, so too will we. But sometimes this suffering may come from elsewhere. It's when you and I make a public stand against sin. That was the experience of Peter's audience who heard that in verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Here their friends have turned into their foes. Their associates have become their antagonists. Their partners are now their persecutors. And they're surprised at this change. Peter's audience, keep in mind, they left these well-established religions, and they went to something completely brand new. As a result, they would become social outcasts. They would lose family and friends over this. They're going to embody the the very words of of chapter 1, verse 2. They're exiles, they're aliens, they're sojourners. They're suffering for their faith, maligned for their love for Christ. And you know, Peter would have seen firsthand what it looks like to suffer for Christ. Better said, he would have seen firsthand what it looks like to to suffer for the will of God. He saw it as he followed Jesus as one of his disciples. Almost everyone maligned Jesus. His church leaders, they said that he is a demon and is insane. His hometown place of worship, his home synagogue, they took offense at him. His own family said, quote, he has lost his senses. But Jesus persevered in suffering. And if that is your experience this morning, believer, Jesus shared it. This is a suffering that, that comes as a result of our faith, that comes from outside of us. But there's also this suffering for our faith which arises from within us, from our own flesh, because starving, sinful desires produces suffering. Starving, sinful desires produces suffering. This is uniquely Christian. Whatever those sins were that you enjoyed, whatever you ran to to find comfort, happiness, pleasure, to stop that sin to mortify it and call it dead, let's be honest, that hurts. That can be very difficult to do. Frankly, maybe easier to try to accommodate it, to try to blend it in with our newfound faith in Jesus, to have a little Jesus and a little sin. But we sigh and we know that's not the call of Christ. If anyone wishes to come after me, says Jesus, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. The cross is a burden. The cross is heavy. You and I are called to suffer under the weight of a cross just like Jesus did. We're called to persevere just like our Lord. So as we prepare to suffer, and as we persevere in it, you need to know that there's good news. There's a promise that comes from suffering. In verses 5 and 6, we see your promise in suffering. And though we suffer, Jesus is going to judge. And though we suffer, we are going to live eternally. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit of God according to the will of God. In verse 5, we learn that those whom malign believers will give an account. This is going to be the most comprehensive judgment ever issued. This redefines the word judgment, frankly, I believe this judgment is given by Jesus himself. New Testament passages point to to God giving Jesus the role of judge on that day. And in the context, this accounting is for those who have persecuted Christians. Jesus says elsewhere, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting in the day of judgment. That's a, a promise for you. If you're maligned for your faith, you need to know Jesus is going to deal with that. Temptations to, to, to judge, to take vengeance, or to retaliate. We may experience that, but that's not ours to be concerned about. I remember one of our Friday night outreaches a few months back. Um, this is downtown Friday night, late at night. Um, a group of us were crossing, just coming out of an intersection, and a group of people were coming in behind us. And we, we wear shirts. They're all matching shirts. We can see one another, and there's something about prayer written on the back of it. And I remember this girl started mocking us very, very loudly, quite boisterously, and she starts deriding prayer and deriding Christians and deriding Christ. You know, that's going to come up again. That is not a point in time that is forever forgotten. She's going to have to answer to Jesus for those kinds of remarks. Apparently, part of the mocking in the day of Peter had to do with Death. I take verse 6 to mean that unbelievers were mocking the death of believers. And I think I understand the source of this claim, how they might think this way. Christians hear the gospel and they believe, and they receive something called eternal life. But what happens? They still die. We die a physical death. So, unbelievers mock this claim of life. What use is your faith anyway if you're going to die? You don't have eternal life. You die just like we do. But what mistake are they making about the gospel? It's not meant to keep us from dying, not a physical death. That's not what the gospel does. Though they died, though the unbelievers judged them in the flesh, they live in the Spirit according to God. They do not have to give an account for their sin. They don't die an eternal death because Christ dealt with that at the cross. To tie it all together, Jesus suffered and died and resurrected, and Christians suffer and die and resurrect. Your promise of suffering here is that Christ is going to judge those who cause it. And your promise in suffering here is that one day you will be freed from that indwelling sin and the suffering that it brings. And the promise of suffering here is that you will live eternally with Jesus Christ. And I should add, if you have not yet this morning dealt with your sin before Jesus, I invite you to do that today. You may do it right now where you are by praying and confessing your sin to Jesus, by believing that he died and rose again for you. If you don't do it now, you will do it later when you give an account to Jesus who judges the living and the dead. All who believe upon him live forever in heaven with him. All who reject him live apart from him in hell forever. Obviously, all of this hinges on Jesus and your relationship to him. Well, today's message was one of suffering. Your preparation for it, God's promise in it, and the necessity of perseverance through it. There's a classic short story entitled The Old Man and the Sea. It's a wonderful tale of victory and defeat, perseverance, it begins with this old man named Santiago. He hasn't caught a fish for 84 days. That's a long time for a seasoned fisherman. It's normal for guys like me. On day 85, he goes out just a bit further, beyond the safety of what would be considered the coastal waters. And wouldn't you know it, on day 85, he hooks a fish. A beautiful, enormous marlin. However, he doesn't pull in the fish. The fish pulls him out. The marlin pulls Santiago out, out, out. Far beyond the safety of those local waters. It pulls him out into dangerous open waters. Both are determined to win. This marlin fighting against Santiago, Santiago fighting against this marlin, Clearly, the marlin outsizes him in terms of size and strength. But the old man, he doesn't give up. He fights. He's exhausted. He's hungry. He's thirsty. His hands are cracked. They're bleeding. On day three, he finally gets close enough to harpoon that marlin. And he ties it to the skiff, victoriously ready to return home. And as he sails home, he gets company. The trail of blood from the marlin begins to attract sharks, ravenous sharks. Santiago slays one right away, but more and more appear. They start biting at the marlin until all that is left is the skeleton, the head, and the tail. Now, when he does return home, which he does, it's nighttime. There's no one there to greet him. He's so close to home, but not there yet, He gets off of his boat, he carries his wooden mass up the hill. Overcoming this ruthless cruelty of nature, he makes it home. He's tested to the limits, but he endures and he wins. Believer, the fight against sin is a struggle. It's going to have its ups and downs, it's going to have its marlins, and it's going to have its sharks. But you're going to have one constant in it all. Every day of Santiago's long career, in times of plenty, in times of 84 days of drought, his boat, a simple skiff, it remained his constant. It never failed him. Not when he drifted too far, not when he was attacked. Believer, Jesus Christ is your mainstay. He is ever-present. He is all-wise. He is consistently reliable in times of suffering. He cannot be someone you simply trusted. He needs to be someone you trust, to cling to, to rely on, to live for. Do not grow discouraged. And do not grow disheartened. You will suffer. And so did your Lord. And he will hold you fast. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we recognize that suffering is part of life and we recognize it's part of the Christian life. Lord, we pray for grace and power when we are called to suffer. I pray for these precious people that in their moments of testing they would stand firm in the faith whether it's a test from outside or a test from within. I pray that you would bless them that you would build us up and mature us through our suffering. I pray for your blessing upon us now, in Jesus' name, amen.